Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Would you please pray with me? And now, O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our strength and you are our redeemer. May you bless these words to our understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Abby Sunderland was only 16 years old when she set out from her home in California in a valiant attempt to become the youngest person to ever circumnavigate the globe solo in a sailboat named Wild Eyes. She sailed for thousands of miles by herself around the southern tips of both South America and Africa, but in the middle of the Indian Ocean, about halfway between Africa and Australia, Abby endured brutal storms until at last her mast snapped and she found herself adrift alone in the sea for about 24 hours until rescuers found her and plucked her from her useless boat, which was left behind to drift wherever it would. And she had no choice but to abandon her boat and abandon her dream and her course around the world forever. A couple of years ago, her sailboat was found drifting off the coast of Australia. It had been left and, and never found, but it was found a couple of years ago. Of course, it never made it back home where it was supposed to have gone with her when she set out. And nobody's going to retrieve the boat. The costs are, of, of that endeavor are too high. So Abby's family and the Australian government have both conf confirmed that unless the sailboat becomes a hazard to other vessels, the sailboat will just remain abandoned to its drift. When we look at the life of King David, as we have been over the past couple of weeks, it's very different, of course, than young Abby's. But just as she learned from a very young age to tap into the power of the wind and use it to direct her course in her sailboat, so David had, since his youth, depended on the power of God to direct the course of his life. For those of you who have been following my little series on King David over the past couple of weeks, we've seen how devoted David was to being in constant communication with God, seeking God's guidance in all that he did. We've seen how he sought confirmation after taking a few steps in the direction he wanted to go getting advice from Nathan, the prophet, who had a, a solid history of faithfully interpreting the mind of God. 
We read about David worshiping God with all his might in gratitude for what God had done for the nation of Israel. He was so connected to God that Nathan had just assumed that when David wanted to do something, God had put that in his heart saying, clearly the Lord is with you. David had raised his sails, so to speak, and the powerful winds of God had directed his life. If you've been reading through 1st and 2nd Samuel along with me, <clears throat> then after last week's passage from chapter 7, you have read in, in chapter 8 that, that God blessed David's humility and faithfulness by giving him victory after victory over the enemies who wanted to destroy him and the nation of Israel. Then in chapter 9, you, you would have read of the goodness of David's heart as he sought to honor his beloved friend Jonathan by, by taking care of his last remaining descendant. Through chapter 10, still we continue to gain insights into the strong and faithful character of David. And today... We've jumped ahead from chapter 7 to chapter 11, which begins with the words, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. In this passage, it seems somewhat strange to read that, that David has stayed back in Jerusalem rather than leading his own army into battle. It seems strange in light of what we already know about David and his devotion to God and to the nation of Israel and, and his skill as the leader of his army. The strangeness of this fact is emphasized when we're told that, that this is the season when all the kings go forth to battle, right? But, but this time, it says, David sends Joab to lead the army, and he stays back. We read that he is lounging in his bed and wandering alone on the roof of his new palace, things seem to have really changed. Now, there may have been reasons he stayed back, which are not mentioned. But the fact that he did stay back is essential to the narrative that follows. David gets up out of his bed, and while wandering around on the roof, he sees Bathsheba, bathing in the courtyard of her house. And, and, and that's not unusual. There's uh, nothing that it fits with um, how their house would have been designed according to the traditional style of houses at that time. Her, her bathing would happen in the courtyard. And so David spies her and he is struck by her beauty. And so even having been told that she is married, 
and she's married to one of his top warriors, he sends for her, which as king, he had the authority to do. He could summon anyone into his presence at will. We're not told anything about how Bathsheba feels about this, but it wouldn't have made any difference. She was in no position to refuse the king. When she discovers later that she is pregnant, she sends word to David. And because her husband Uriah is away at battle, it will be very obvious that the child is not his. So in order to cover up his sin and the shame that would befall Bathsheba, even though she had no choice in the matter, she would still have shame brought on her. And Uriah's humiliation, David summons Uriah from the battlefront and tries to get him to sleep with his wife, thereby saving face for everyone, but especially for him. Except that even if it had all gone according to David's plan, the damage had already been done and God would not be fooled. But it doesn't go according to David's plan because Uriah has been consecrated for battle. He's away at battle and he was consecrated for battle. And a part of the consecration is abstinence from sexual activity. And so even though David gets him drunk and tries to lower his inhibitions, Uriah's integrity will not allow him to betray his fellow warriors who are still out in the battlefield. The contrast that the biblical writer is making between Uriah and David couldn't be starker. So David had him killed making it look like he died in battle, which would bring honor to Uriah and would save face. It's another cover-up for David's sins. And so then he takes Bathsheba to be his own wife, thinking that, that it will save face for the two of them and prevent dishonor. It really is one of the more sordid stories of the Bible, and it's all the more shocking to read because it's David, the king, the shepherd boy, the one who defeated Goliath, the psalmist, the man after God's own heart, the ancestor of Jesus. Did you notice one notable thing that David didn't do through all of this? He didn't seek the face of the Lord. He didn't seek counsel from Nathan this time. He didn't seek confirmation from God that his actions were according to God's will. He didn't praise or give thanks or honor or glory to God in the midst of any of these events. The late American pastor and author Gantz Little wrote in one interesting commentary, the account of David's great sin contained in this chapter reflects the absolute honesty of the biblical treatment of God's chosen servants. 
Moral obliquity is not painted in pastel shades to save the reputation of the Lord's anointed. No recorded history, either sacred or secular, is so blunt in handling the weaknesses of its heroes. The reason, of course, is not hard to find. The Bible is concerned to maintain the glory of God, not of any individual human being, whatever his earthly fame, his trappings, or his title. Up to this point in 1st and 2nd Samuel, we have been shown a picture of David as someone who was so close to God, so devoted, a man of impeccable character and goodness. But lest we begin to glorify David, we're given a very human story, a story of adultery, of desperate attempts to save face, and finally of having an innocent man killed so that he may then take Bathsheba as his own wife. In today's scripture reading, we, we, we learn that David's mast has finally snapped. We don't know precisely when, and we don't know precisely how he lost his close connection with God. But as we picture him getting out of his bed and wandering around on his roof alone, while all the men of Israel are off fighting his battle, we get a real sense of a man who is drifting. He's not harnessing the power of God to direct his choices and decisions. And the results are catastrophic. Like Abby Sunderland's drifting sailboat would never make it home without its sails channeling the wind, spiritual drift never takes us closer to God if we are not intentionally seeking God's will, we will not drift into God's will. And there's a very real possibility that we will drift into sin and damage our Christian witness and cause harm to others in the meanwhile. Spiritual drift can happen so easily in our lives. Look how easily it happened to a spiritual giant like David. And it's usually very subtle in our lives. And as with David, we, we don't even notice how far we have drifted from God until it's too late. Maybe we drift into sin as David did. Or maybe we just suddenly realize that we need God's guidance or we need God's help or, or comfort and we feel like we don't know where to find him. We've drifted and our relationship with God doesn't feel as close or natural anymore. How does, how does spiritual drift happen? Well, it, does, it doesn't happen overnight, right? That's sort of the anti-definition of drift. It, it doesn't happen overnight. It often starts with us settling in and feeling overly confident or blasé in our knowledge of God, as David likely did to, at the point that we were reading about this morning. Even, even the great prophet Nathan had just assumed that God was with David in whatever he wanted to do, right? 
we too can come to feel like we're good, established Christians, and we know what we need to know about God, and, and we know what Christianity is all about, and that is dangerous thinking. We'll never know everything there is to know about God. And as soon as we think we're good, as soon as we think we know enough, and we stop seeking God, and we start to drift. For me, that happened after confirmation. And, and that's, not, uh, that's not uncommon. It's not unusual, um, even if it's not a conscious thought. We don't consciously think that. Um, but we view our confirmation as a kind of graduation, right? That we've learned all that we need to know in order to become full adult Christians, and then we go on to attend to the other parts of our lives. I, for one, attended to those so-called other parts of life without the guidance of God for some time. And so, like many people, I drifted away from God. Spiritual drift also starts to happen when we think we don't need God and we don't need the community of God's people in order to live good, faithful lives. And this, again, may be conscious or unconscious. We think that reading scripture isn't important. We don't need to pray. We don't really need to gather with the church. I can worship anywhere. I don't have to worship in the building, right? I don't need that. Mm. We can worship God in our own ways. And so we start to fill our time with other things. But without scripture, without prayer and worship and the fellowship and support of the community, we quickly grow distant from God. It's like when you pull an ember out of the fire, it quickly loses its heat. And, we, and so we start to shape God into our own image rather than the other way around so that God must think like we do, right? And God must value what we value. God wants what we want rather than us shaping our thoughts, values, and wants around his. So we start to just go with the flow of the culture around us. And then we find ourselves in a situation that is beyond our human limited wisdom. And then we don't quite know how to connect with God. And we're isolated from the Christian community that might be able to help us find God's plan for us in our circumstances. For David, it was precisely when he was isolated from the rest of the community and complacent about seeking God that he ended up in the situation he was in. So how do we avoid spiritual drift? Well, it takes intention and commitment. We have to intentionally lift our sails and tap into the strong and powerful winds of God and commit ourselves to giving God priority in our lives. We have to choose 
to spend time each day in prayer and reading the Bible and listening for the voice of God. We don't just drift into prayer. We don't just drift into listening to the for the voice of God. We have to make it a priority in our lives to worship and to be surrounded and encouraged by other believers. We have to make time to, to read about our faith and to study and learn and grow. Like anything else, spiritual growth doesn't just happen. We have to be intentional about it. If we're not intentionally growing, then by definition, we're drifting in our spiritual lives. If you find that you're in a state of spiritual drift in your own life right now, then there's something interesting that you'll find if you continue to read beyond the verses that Nippur read for us this morning. And that is this, that no matter how far we have drifted, it is never too late to turn back. And we can never drift beyond the loving reach of God. A drifting sailboat will never outdrift the wind. Unlike Abby and her sailboat, though, God does not abandon us to our drift. God did not abandon David, and God still fulfilled his great promise to build a house for David that would endure forever, even though David's life was changed after these events. He did turn back to God with great acts of repentance. And from then on, he understood how important and how serious it was to resume his devotion um, to seeking God. But the damage to his family and to his legacy and to his relationship with God had been done and had left its scars. God will always forgive our sins and we can always turn back to God and our relationship with him will be restored and our sins left behind. But David couldn't undo what he had done and he did have to live with the consequences of where his drift had led him. When we read through the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew, though, we see something really interesting. The genealogy that culminates with the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, starts with Abraham. And then after a few generations, we come to this. It says, Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The genealogy of Jesus does not shy away from the honest humanity of his ancestors and shows us that despite our human frailties, God can still use our lives for his perfect plans. And our sincere acts of repentance when we do fall short are to be respected. 
with this inclusion in the genealogy of the Lord's Messiah, we see the fulfillment of God's great promises to David, despite his sin, despite his moral failures and shortcomings. God is great. God's faithfulness is not dependent on human merit. And God's perfect plans cannot be derailed by our imperfection. David repented of his sin and he got his life more or less back on track. Things were never quite the same for him. Sin, as I said, always leaves its scars. And the dysfunction that was lived out amongst his children after this failing makes all of our families look positively saintly. <laughs> but after that time, David renewed his practice of seeking the face of the Lord and singing songs of praise, as we see in later chapters of 2 Samuel. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 23, at the end of David's life, we read this. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. That's how David was remembered. Because he turned back to God, this is how David is remembered in the history books of the Bible. Not for his failure, as serious as it was. He was remembered for his spiritual greatness because even after his failure, he got up, he returned his heart to the Lord in repentance. He lifted his sails back up to channel the powerful winds of God's wisdom. And God directed his course through the stormy years of his later life. I pray that this may be so for all of us. Amen. <laughs>